0: Going to be in Proverbs 3 this morning. <clears throat> as we continue our series on wisdom. There's a, pardon me. <coughs> Sorry. There's an old saying that goes, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. It was first written down by poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in his poem The Golden Legend which is primarily about temptation and sacrifice. And even in the poem, Longfellow acknowledged it was a much older proverb. The the idea is that one should focus on what is in front of them and then worry about other things later whenever they come up. The saying took on a whole new meaning when singer Jimmy Buffett sang, we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. And this reversal mixes the original saying with the idea of burning bridges, uh, which is a metaphor meaning to end relationships, uh, or to, to stop making a certain line of choices. Uh, in other words, we'll worry about how to end that when the time is right. Now, it seems like whether we are crossing bridges or burning them, we are inevitably going to have to deal with a bridge here or there at some point. And Bridges in the metaphor are a point of decision. We might also use the phrase, a fork in the road, uh, to describe this idea. At some point each of us has to come to this bridge or this fork and we've been faced with a choice to make. Each of us has found ourselves uh, at the fork in the road where the path ahead splits and we have to choose which direction are we going to go. And it's often something simple, maybe even subtle, like what kind of food we want for supper. We might not even notice that we have burned one bridge and crossed another in that situation. But it can also be something really major, some life decision that we're faced with that changes the course of everything that follows. Now, a little over 10 years ago, my family was living in Richardson, Texas, which is a suburb just north of Dallas. Melissa was teaching kindergarten for the school district, and I was working as a youth pastor at a church in another suburb called McKinney. And our two older children had started school at the elementary in our neighborhood, Uh, and I worked from home and took care of these two because they were very small at the time. Uh, We had been back in Richardson for almost four years. We'd actually been out here in Alpine for a few years and then gone back up to Richardson. Uh, We'd been there for about four years, and we were just starting to sort of settle into our lives there. Then on July 4th, I got a call from Arlene that set in motion a series of events that led to a major fork in the road for our family. Do we stay in Richardson, or do we pick up our lives and move back out to West Texas? Now, if we stay put, what might we be missing? If we moved, what might we leave behind? It wasn't an easy decision for us. And at first, we were both pretty much leaning away from the idea of moving our family again. Now, we came out for a visit a few weeks later, and God made it clear in various ways that this is where we should be. Then The church voted, and then we agreed, and we packed all our belongings into a giant, you know, 18-wheeler moving truck and arrived here in waves, actually. Melissa and the kids showed up first to start the school year while I finished my two weeks in McKinney, and then I packed the house in the evenings and moved it out here uh, September 1st, 10 years ago. Man, that's a long time, right? (laughs) Things have changed a lot in that 10 years. The kids have grown up here. All my kids, even, even my older two who are off at of college, they pretty much grew up here. We've lived in other places, but this is home. And it's all because of a point in our lives where we came to a bridge and we crossed it. Now, we've arrived at a fork in the road. We, we headed one way instead of another. We, we could have stayed, but we chose to follow the call and move out here. And there was a risk. We didn't know anything really much about Marathon so much. we have been in Alpine. But we came out to do the work of the kingdom in a place that didn't have all the resources of the big city churches, like the one that I was at, uh, to essentially head out into the wilderness and then trust in the Lord to provide. And he has. I like... Like in the poem, uh, Robert Frost, if some of y'all heard of him, he's one of my favorite poets, and he wrote in one of his poems, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Well, that brings us to our text, and the choices that we will be faced with as we dig into it. So follow along with me if you will, we're going to read from Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For in length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. May God bless the reading of this word. Okay, so. Solomon began this section of his writing by encouraging his son to pay attention. It was a way of saying that this next part that I'm about to tell you is really important. He emphasized that following what he was teaching would lead to peace and long life. And if what he wrote was true, then it would stand in reason that it's still true now. He began by saying that steadfast love and faithfulness were of utmost importance. And we've seen these terms before when we looked at the Psalms last summer. In Psalm 103.4, we read that the Lord crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And in Hebrew, the term there is chesed, which means an active affection. A sense of love and loyalty that inspires Merciful and compassionate behavior toward another person. The other Hebrew term used there is emet, which means firmness, faithfulness, or truth. Solomon was saying that if wisdom is the goal, a person must be engaged in active affection towards others and in truth. In his poetic form, he said they should be bound around the neck and then written on the tablet of the heart. And the idea is about these virtues being both outwardly visible like a necklace, but also being a matter of inward sincerity. That we wouldn't just do good things, but that we would do them as a result of the goodness within. That our hearts would drive our good actions. Now, in Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So why would Solomon think that we should rely on the heart for goodness? Well, in verse 1, he wrote that the heart should keep the commandments, commandments of God. Going back to Proverbs 2, 6 through 10, he had written that the Lord gives wisdom and that the Lord's wisdom will come into the hearts of those who who lean into him. In other words, those who actively engage in love and truth will have a change of heart. And only then will the Lord's wisdom be unveiled within them in order to work its way out into their lives. To put it another way, if we lean into the Lord, he leans back into us. When he does, it changes everything about who we are and how we live. We no longer live according to the wisdom of this world. We no longer value the things that our culture values. We don't get wrapped up in the power struggles of those around us. In a sense, God's wisdom allows us to transcend the world that we live in, to overcome it and step beyond it. Like the children of Israel leaving their slavery in Egypt behind them, the wisdom of the Lord frees us from our captivity. We talk about this in terms of trusting in Jesus for salvation. This is a perfect parallel because as we have seen, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are the wisdom of God embodied before us. This is why steadfast love and faithfulness or active affection and truth, that's why they're so important. Without these things, we will follow the foolish way of our world. When we think of Jesus, do we think of these things? And if so, does that mean that as his followers, they should be true of us as well? So how are we doing? Take a look back at your week for a minute. Think about the week that you've had. The people that you've interacted with over the past several days. Did they see Jesus in you? Like the song that we just sang, Let Others See Jesus in You. When they encounter you, are they expecting active affection and truth? Or something else? See, all too often it seems like people encounter Christians, those who claim to follow Jesus, and their experience is anything but pleasant. They don't feel loved. They don't feel encouraged. They feel judged and excluded. And I know, because I've felt this way around more Christians than I can remember. And I'm not saying there aren't some good folks out there because there are but there's plenty of folks bearing the name of Jesus and living like someone or something else is really their Lord and Savior. We can't be like that, right? We can't claim the name of Jesus and then live foolishly, live just for ourselves or whatever makes us comfortable and happy. Love and truth require sacrifice. Surely we can see that in who Jesus is. And if so, we need to see it in ourselves and each other as well. So, how do we get there? Well, Solomon set it out in verses 5 through 6. He said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, I memorized this when I was young, in Bible trouble, and so I memorized a bunch of verses, this was one of them, but we actually learned it as a song, which is how I have taught it to my kids as well, and I I told them I was going to make them sing it for y'all, but I'm not, that would be much. Uh, You should have seen their faces when I said it, though, it was great. Um, But but there was a song that went along, trust the Lord with all your heart, yeah, that was a whole song. It's it's a great couple of verses to know when doubts and questions arise. And I have doubts and questions all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. But what do we do with them? That's the thing, right? For me, verses like this have instructed how I deal with my struggles. I may not know the answers, I may not even be sure of all the things, right, but I trust in the Lord. I know better than to lean on my own understanding, and it's not that I haven't before. I just know how that tends to work out. I've been on the bad end of some situations because of my own choices, and I'm sure we all have at some point or another. If you'll ask me later, I'll tell you about the time I went to jail. Right? Your pastor's been in jail? But consider the wisdom of Solomon that he was passing on here. Based in a time when everyone either walked or if they were really wealthy and they rode a horse, the path that one took mattered. Crooked paths have corners and lots of places for bandits and robbers to hide and then suddenly attack out of nowhere. This is true of the path from Jericho to Jerusalem that was the setting for Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, there was a man that was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he's attacked by robbers. It's on that very road. And if you ever Google a picture of it, you'll see it's like walking through a canyon with all sorts of twists and turns, never knowing what's around the corner, right? Nobody likes walking those paths. Some folks back then would even go really far out of the way just to avoid them. Which makes sense, because why take chances? The point of what Solomon was saying is not that trusting in the Lord would mean never being in trouble or facing attacks, but that a straight path meant having plenty of heads up when bad things are ahead. That's what that's about. We can see them coming. There's there's no way for them to hide, right? They don't suddenly jump out at us. And this is a simple metaphor, but it has a profound meaning. The point is that when we trust in ourselves, bad things will surprise us because we can't see far enough ahead. But the Lord can see it all. The whole path from start to finish And if we trust in Him instead of ourselves, we receive the benefit of both His foresight and His strength. Solomon wrote in verses 7 and 8 that if we fear the Lord and don't imagine ourselves as the wise ones, it will be healing and refreshing. Which means that there's a connection here that ties back to our series on healing that we just finished. Somehow the wisdom of the Lord and healing are related. And again, isn't this part of the gospel? That the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that brought about the ultimate healing are the wisdom of God? That the wisdom that confounds mankind's wisdom, that God would come as one of us and die on a cross and then rise again? I'm pretty sure we all know this to be true. we've all experienced this in some way or another, and yet we probably all still struggle with it from time to time in some way. We still try to figure things out on our own, whether it's in our relationships, our, our marriages, our families, our friendships, our neighbors, our town. It might be in how we deal with a health situation or a mental health situation, It may be how we handle our financial issues or anything else that requires us to make decisions. And Solomon addressed some of these as well. Now, all of them show up in some form or another in the Proverbs. Uh, But here in verses 9 and 10, we see him tackling finances. And his approach is short and sweet. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of your produce. And this was written at a time when most people were farmers. They actually had produce, like what we find on the produce aisle at the grocery store. And most of us don't have that, right? When we aren't bringing large baskets of corn and wheat and whatever else to the church, it wouldn't fit in our offering box anyway. (laughs) But here's the point. Yes, this is talking about tithing about bringing the 10%. And yes, we should all be giving to the Lord for the work of the kingdom here in this place. But this is really about more than just that tithe bit. More than the 10%. To honor the Lord with our wealth means to honor God with everything. It doesn't mean we give 100% to the church because then we wouldn't have anything left to live on, right? That wouldn't make sense. But it means honoring God in all the different ways that we use our wealth, what we have. When it comes to buying things, whatever they may be, we need to ask ourselves how they make sense in the kingdom of God. Most of the things we have will make sense, right? A home to live in, food to eat, vehicles to get us around, those sorts of things. But what if we have more than we need? And what if someone we know has less than they need. In the ancient Jewish culture Solomon was a part of, it was seen as evil to let your neighbor suffer when you could provide for them. Jesus talked about this in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.42, he said, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He was referencing and then sort of adding to Deuteronomy 15, 7-8, in the Torah, the commandments, where we read, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. How do we honor God with our finances. We give to the work of the kingdom through the congregation. We take care of our responsibilities at home, and we give generously to those in need as we're able. As we thrive, we help others thrive. It's a holistic approach to life in community. For us, we're in the community of God's kingdom, right? But we can't overlook where we have been placed. God didn't bring us all to West Texas to live isolated lives, even though I know that's sort of common out here. We have been brought together in this place for the good of this place. To live in any other way would be to go against the purpose God has given us. It would mean that we are embracing foolishness. The following God, on the other hand, comes with a promise. The promise attached to this particular proverb is that our barns will be full and we have more wine than we know what to do with. Now, I don't have a barn. The problem most of us don't have barns. Walter and Red may have barns, right? Y'all have barns? Yeah, they have barns. But the idea here is is different. This was written when people were agricultural, like... Walter Red. Full barns and overflowing vats would be a great problem to have, right? It means you have plenty. And that's how it translates for us as well, even if we don't have all that stuff. It means having plenty. Being provided for by God. Not having to worry even if things are difficult. Because ultimately we're in God's hands and that is the best place we could be. verses 11 through 12, Solomon encouraged his son not to despise discipline or reproof. And as I said before, these are not things that we tend to like. We don't like being wrong or being told we're wrong. We don't like admitting we're wrong even when we know we're wrong. And sometimes our stubbornness is mightier than our willingness. Like in the story of Jonah that we looked at a while back. Jonah was... Wrong to run away from what God was calling him to do, and he knew it. But off he went on a boat headed in the opposite direction. But aren't we all sort of like that? Sort of stubborn, sort of rebellious? Don't we all struggle with the conviction we feel when we are in the wrong? I know for a long time I would find ways to try and mask it or ignore it. I didn't want to be corrected. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I would distract myself with video games or I would try and justify what I was doing as if I could somehow trick God into thinking it was a good idea when it clearly was not. I'm still like that to some extent. Thankfully, not as much, not as often, not to as great an extent, but I'm definitely not perfect yet, right? There's still areas of my life that the Holy Spirit wants to clean out that I have refused to surrender. That's foolishness. It's foolish of me to be defiant like that, to refuse the Holy Spirit, because God just wants good for me. And even though I tend to think that I have it all figured out, the truth is that only God knows the straight path. Solomon reminds his son that the Lord reproves the one he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. This is hard for me because my relationship with my father wasn't very good. So what tends to happen is that I picture God sort sort of like being like my dad. And I didn't trust my dad. So, trusting God with all my heart doesn't come easy for me. It's a struggle. But the Lord is not like any of our fathers. The Lord doesn't have any of their faults or hang ups. The Lord is a good father, a loving father, a patient father. It's like in that Chris Tomlin song where he sings, You're a good, good father, it's who you are and I am loved by you. It's who I am. It's a great song. Here's the point. If the Lord is correcting us, it's not because we made him mad or let him down. It's because he wants what is best for us, and we're headed in the wrong direction. Listening to our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants the best for us and knows what's up ahead, that's about the wisest thing we could ever do. I know there's still six verses left to cover. You might look at your watches. Um, But they're basically an echo of what Solomon wrote in chapter one, which we talked about last week. I just wanted to include them for the sake of sort of circling back around to the idea of paying attention and following the wisdom of God. Now here we see wisdom personified as a woman again, and this time we discover that what we can gain from following in her ways is better than silver or gold, better than precious jewels, that nothing can compare to the blessings we get from God's wisdom. At the very end, Solomon likened wisdom to a tree of life. This is part of the reason I included this. See, this wasn't accidental or casual. Solomon knew the story. He knew the tree of life was no longer accessible. But through the wisdom of God, we might be able to get even the smallest sample of what it was like. Because the wisdom of God and the tree of life ultimately produce the same thing. Life. Abundant life. Life beyond measure. And this is why it's so important to trust in the Lord with all our hearts whatever bridge it is that we may be coming up to whatever bridge we may need to cross in order to follow in the way of God's wisdom, whatever bridges we might need to burn as we turn away from various temptations to live for ourselves whatever path the Lord leads us on it will be for our good and the good of those around us we just need to trust that the Lord with all our heart, can keep from leaning on our own understanding, to acknowledge him in everything we do so that our path will be straight. We pray with